and welcome back to the Bandit Fiction Podcast, episode 5. If you're new here, a little about who we are. We are a not-for-profit digital publisher aimed at new and emerging writers, although everyone is welcome to submit. If you're interested in reading the stories that we publish, or perhaps submitting one of your own, check out our website at www.banditfiction.com. We publish stories multiple times a week, and if you submit and don't make the cut, then we also offer free feedback on request. We have three stories for you today. Scott's Burial by Brendan Shear, A Small Life by Joe Butler, and Pigeon English by David Cook. Before we get into our three stories today, though, we must give a shout out to our readers, listeners, community, but especially our patrons. David Brown, Stephen Thompson, Jake McAuliffe, Ole Ismail, Ryan Walraven, Joe Butler, Zach Copeland-Green, Kevin Bonfield, and Randy Workman. If you'd like to find out how to become one of our patrons, with special perks including exclusive discounts and being able to nominate stories for this very podcast, just head over to www.banditfiction.com forward slash support. We'll kick things off with a reading of Scott's Burial by Brendan Shear, read by J.G. Champkin. My mother was never the same after we buried Scott. When he died, soon after turning thirteen, she wept that it was too soon. Wept he was too young. Wept that no parent should have to bury their child. It was torture for us to watch him waste away, to know he would never again find peace in life. The cancer was in his bones. His legs barely moved at the end. My father's emotions were also conflicted, but for other reasons. Scott's extended suffering had taken a toll on our finances. That's $3,000 this month alone. A man's cold, clumsy grieving, yes, but perhaps he was right. $3,000 a month for chemo is probably too much to spend on a 13-year-old cat. Scott entered our lives as a stray named Whitey. Reports of a feral white cat made the rounds of our tree-lined cul-de-sac, and soon enough we saw his glowing green eyes at night, seemingly floating five feet up in our yard. He had taken to our trees for his night stalking. Then he showed himself in the light. No cat, before or since, have I seen sprint, leap, bat, pin and rip like Whitey, a born hunter. Our backyard was a boneyard of squirrels, robins, moles, mice, an occasional rat and even a possum once. My father hated running the mower over the carcasses, scattered like sprinkles on a cake. Weeks would pass without mowing. He would wait as the grass grew, gradually hiding the festering bodies. My sisters and I complained that our space was unfit for play. Just wait, he said, the next storm will wash it out. He was a history professor, unaccustomed to biological degeneration and lacking a basic understanding of drainage. The grass grew, the body count increased, and Whitey began his reign as pale death himself, not with a scythe, but with ten sharp little claws. He eventually made our backyard home because of the steady supply of cheese, milk and tuna my mother left out. She would see no creature suffer, and occasionally even applied this principle to her own children. The beast of our yard gladly took our offerings, but he loathed our affection. He would only approach my mother. She would kneel, cooing softly, and Whitey would allow himself to be pet for a few moments before hissing and sprinting into the bushes. My father made no attempt to befriend the stray. 
but he did give him his first name. Damn it, Whitey, he would snap as he watched Whitey devouring birds through his bedroom window. But his voice betrayed him. His life was devoted to papers and the names on those papers. It was a life of skimming information and redistributing facts to a room full of disengaged and hungover children. He lived to retell the lives of people who had actually lived. When he barked at Whitey, that voice was enthusiasm, posing as exasperation. He liked that he had to bark, that he had before him a creature with bite. Did he desire such unrepentant, pure instinct, forbidden to a gentleman yet so deeply craved? His jaw clenched and flexed like he was chewing a quarry. Why do we have so many rodents in our yard, I asked my father as we watched my mother's food-giving ritual, my chin stretched up to the windowsill. Rodents. I was young enough to be proud I knew the word, but not old enough to understand its weight. Don't like them? You clean up their bodies, he said. I slowly backed away, tiptoeing my exit. Only once did Whitey allow me to touch him. Returning from school one spring day, he lay still on the step of our back door. I prayed he was dead. My little sister worried it was a trap and buried her head in my back. It's going to kill us, she yelped. Kathy was a delicate child. Years later, I spied her cradling a fallen leaf in her palms, whispering, Don't you know you're so beautiful? Whitey's side barely raised with his breathing, but there was yet a rise and fall. Whitey wasn't dead. Even he didn't seem capable of this deeper deception. That, naturally, gave me the greatest moment of doubt. If he is capable, though, well, my God. I took the noble path. I grabbed a stick and poked him. Twice. Whitey didn't react, which just made gentle Cathy snap harder. So harder I poked, and this time Whitey reacted. He simply made a sound. Um, did he say mom? Um, he cried. Our mother threw the door open and leapt three steps to land on all fours next to the dying stray cat. She was panting, and her eyes darted about at the scene. A slack sack of fur, children standing, a stick poking. She swatted the stick from my hand and leaned close to Whitey's whiskers. She brushed her face against his. Soothingly, she whispered words strange and uncomfortable to hear. She caressed Whitey's side, stopping only when she reached his hip, and he croaked his, um, again. I'm here, my mother pledged to the cat. It's tricking us, Kathy hissed behind me. He's hurt. So she swept her arms around the limp animal, which hadn't the strength to resist. Whitey's shoulders pinched back, the claws grew, but then all was a shudder and collapse into itself. My mother brought him to the animal hospital, and when they explained, despite her insistence, that there were no beds available for family members, she booked a room in a neighbouring hotel. For three days, the creatures of our yard could collect their dead in their own ways. Our home was quiet. Then she returned with a cast-legged, cone-necked cat. You'll have to be gentle with him, my mother told us. We stared dumbly at her. He's got a pin in his hip. An image of war presented itself to me. I, huddled in a bunker against an invasion, clutching a cat in one hand and pulling a pin tail from it with another. Tossing the cat hissing and flailing, the quiet suspense, the explosion. I looked at him with awe and fear. And he's been declawed, my father said, sadly. Indeed, his paws were bandaged tight. He could never go outside again. Imagine the enemies he's made, and them lining up to take their shots now. I noticed my father's hair had streaks of silver on the sides. 
For the first time, I thought of him as tired, old. He needs a name, my mother said. He's got a name, my father said. What's wrong with Whitey? He needs a real name. He's one of us now. He's a cat. How could you say that? My mother named him Scott. She placed the cat on our sofa, and until his death, that sofa would never be clean of fur and the smell of litter and canned fish. We knew not to sit in his spot, which he rarely left. And so Whitey became Scott, and for ten years lived under a house arrest that saved and tortured him. My mother and Scott would lay on the couch for hours, Scott asleep on her belly, and her hands absently petting his back. For ten years he watched TV, mostly talk shows and my mother's stories, until he couldn't stand it, and he'd escape outside and try to climb trees. Try. His paws, clawless, didn't have grip anymore, and he would just slide desperately down the trunks. I didn't like watching him like that. And he lived like that until he didn't anymore. He degraded in the way cats degrade. I wasn't around to see the worst of it. I was in college, safely distant from home. My father visited and shared the tales of Scott's decline. That was when he mentioned the piling costs. Before he left, he mentioned he loved that cat. He rushed to the bathroom and came back with vain red eyes. Scott died later that month, buried before I returned, but my mother chronicled the details over the phone. My mother swore Scott died smiling as they sat on a blanket basking in breezy sunshine. I did not want to listen, the breath failing, the gentle wheeze that could have been a purr but wasn't, the lazy eyelids slipping shut without the promise of opening again, his impotent paws clenching and unclenching, weakly digging into his blanket, the blanket that he had stolen from me. A squirrel immodestly observing from a few feet away, Scott's cloudy eyes trying to focus on it but losing it. The squirrel stepped closer, almost a paw strike away. Instinct won and Scott died with his paw outstretched, but the squirrel was safe. He was buried on the spot he died, under the oak in our backyard. She had no shovel, my mother dug a hole two feet deep with her hands and a beach toy trowel. Six years later, the tree became a stump when a blight condemned it and the town demanded its destruction. But the blight wasn't content with just the trees. While the yard went, so too did the neighbourhood. The violence of beasts became the violence of humans, and when the second murder occurred, this time only three streets over, my father moved the family beyond the suburbs to escape it all. My mother spent moving day staring at the backyard. It had gone to weed, and then dirt, and finally a mouldy mud. Nobody really seemed to mind. She stared out of the window as the rest of us, all grown, came back to get boxes from old bedrooms and debate whether to just throw them into dumpsters now rather than later. The trucks were packed, but she was still staring out of the kitchen window over the dead yard. I had given her a cheap silver cat pendant necklace years before, which she absently pressed between her fingers. She told us to go. She would follow behind on her own. The new home took us an hour to reach, but it took my mother hours. Night was falling, and we were eating pizza on the floor when the unfamiliar doorbell rang. We thought she had fallen in the mud. Dark, wet dirt was drying on her knees, her elbows, her forearms, her wrists, her palms, her fingers. She smelled of old, wet earth. Her face was garish and caked clay. It was her face that delayed our realising, for we should have known far sooner than we realised. She walked into the house like she was under threat or suspicion. 
her eyes darting left and right, and her shoulders hunched low and tight. She was walking on her toes, silently and dirtily over the carpet. Her body seemed folded upon itself, smothering something. She walked through the hall and straight to the back door. In the lowering darkness, she stepped down the deck stairs and walked to the far corner of the nicely tailored lawn. She bent down, and it seemed to us that a piece of her had fallen and lay on the grass. The nightshade was blooming, and all was becoming one in darkness, but her darkness was a little darker, and that spot a little darker than night. She walked to the shed and disappeared inside. We heard her shuffling across the grass, then the sound of shoveling, then her crying. When she reached the deck steps, we fled to the bathrooms, the hallways, the bedrooms. I was waiting on the stairs like a child. Turning the corner, she saw me. Tell me you didn't, I said. She looked me dead in the eyes. He's one of us. Then she explained the details, the goddamn exhumation of a cat's corpse. She smiled at the end, looking at and past my eyes. He looked peaceful, she said, and now he's home. I moved to the side to allow her to go up the stairs. When the others returned from hiding, and found me with my head in my hands, they asked me, Did she really? The door to her new room slammed shut, silencing our whispers, and we stared up the steps into the darkness of her hall. A stone-winged cat statue sits upon Scott's current grave. I visit his spot when I visit their home. Not to pay respects to Scott, I have cats of my own dead and buried now, but to study the way the grass rises around the statue's base, to see how much it has sunken into the earth. I check to see if the statue has shifted, to see if the grass is still intact, undisturbed. Sometimes there are items at the statue's base, open cans of tuna, left in an offering or pleading or whatever the hell it is. At night you can see the shadowy forms of rodents nosing the cans, and you can see my mother at the kitchen window, her fingers twisting the cat pendant hanging over her heart, staring deep into the dark. And that was Scott's Burial by Brendan Shear. Next up is A Small Life by Joe Butler. Read by David Gregory Clark. A Small Life by Joe Butler. Narrated by David Gregory Clark. He wants nothing more than to live a small and subtle life, yet his thoughts always seem to drift dreamlike toward crime. He keeps himself to himself, or so people would say, but everyone does. When his parents died, he was lonely, so he applied for a cat, and that was enough. He derives a simple joy from their relationship, and the cat responds with something that feels like understanding. In the evening, it settles on the arm of the chair where it can be petted and purrs happily. After years of living just so, he receives the news that he has been assigned a life partner. The match is based on a set of factors he was not privy to and was not consulted on, but they are both assured they will approve of each other. She arrives on a humid Thursday afternoon in June. They are the same age, more or less. Her hair is brown, cut in an angular bob, and short, to reveal a long, slender neck. Her eyes are brown and protrude a little, giving her a slight appearance of being constantly surprised. She wears an expression of mild irritation, 
but is cordial enough and shakes his hand. People arrive later that day carrying her belongings. She hums to herself as she places small ornaments shaped into animals on his bare shelves. The day after she arrives, a man from the council knocks on the door, shows him a letter, and then euthanizes his cat. He snatches the purring creature's orange scruff like a mother cat might, and the creature stiffens, his tiny pink tongue poking from between his sharp little teeth. The man injects him with something that makes him yowl and foam at the mouth until he shakes violently and dies. The councilman assures him it is painless. He is told that as part of his companion contract, the body must be taken to be rendered within 24 hours. When the councilman hands him a freezer box to store the cat in, he imagines overpowering him and injecting him with that lethal syringe. Then, running into the Department of Domestic Companions and smashing their computer banks to oblivion. He has a sudden, desperate desire to set all the animals free from their contracts. Instead, he thanks the man, as he is obliged to do, and starts to cry. He reaches into the cold box and strokes his dead friend's russet fur, taking in its unique pattern for the last time. He logs onto his home computer and applies for a grief license. He does not like the idea of handing the cat's body over just yet, so he keeps the freezer box in the living room. His life partner does not seem to like this, and she glares at him until he takes it into the kitchen. Like him, she mostly keeps herself to herself. They speak little to each other, engaging only in logistical matters like eating and bathroom times. They decide on a rota for cooking and cleaning. They make no attempt at romance, and any physical contact is stiff, difficult. His attempts to engage her are met with long, sullen silences. She tells him that she is in love with someone else, and he asks her what that is like. She does not answer. They spend their free time apart. She attends some mandatory social clubs, and he watches the television in the living room. His hand instinctively caresses the arm of the chair where his cat once perched. Whenever he catches himself doing it, he sighs mournfully and imagines running away, going somewhere outside the city, going to a place where he can walk barefoot across warm sand and feel the heat of the sun on his naked toes, be alone. He yearns to turn in all directions and see no sign of humankind, and he mechanically feels guilty for even thinking it. He has been taught that abdication of responsibilities and obligations to the state and its people is the worst crime. He does not know what his life partner does as a job. He knows it is government work, but she does not care to elaborate. Maybe one day she will, he thinks, as he watches her from the kitchen. She watches the television and absently draws together two long knitting needles. They turn over each other in quick programmed movements and form a fragile chain at the top of the scarf she is knitting for her lover. He stands there, accidentally staring, their dinners bubbling away on the stove behind him as he tries to discern the arbitrary factors that cause the two of them to be drawn together, like the threads of pale pink wool knotted and looped between her fingers. She looks up at him, and he feels heat climbing his neck. He looks away. 
The walk to work through the city takes a long time, so he has to get up before sunrise. From the small porthole window in the bathroom, he observes the dark shape of the city abutting the sky. The neat, angular lines of the brutalist tower blocks that spread along the horizon resemble a sine wave. They eat up the color of the horizon, pixelating the dawn, making it look like a corrupted digital image. Birds circle the towers, gulls mainly, even though the sea is miles from here. He cranes his neck in the small window space, toothpaste dripping from his chin, and tries to see past the perimeter of the city, but there is too much pollution. He yearns to see small finches or swallows alighting on tree branches or darting from birdhouses in some garden somewhere. He is frightened by the larger birds because of his dreams. The dreams of great white wings. Swan-like, they flap back and forth, then begin to fall apart. Each tumbling feather resembles a flake of snow until there is a blizzard all around him, and then he is falling into blackness. The skeletal remains of the wings dip down and he tries to clutch them in his slippery hands as he falls and falls through miles of darkness. Far above is a point like a distant sun. The mentally ill are processed and recycled so he keeps the dreams to himself, holds those dread thoughts tightly inside in hopes that one day they will leave him. He catches his reflection in the mirror and stops. The foaming toothpaste around his lips reminds him of his cat dying, so he quickly rinses, avoiding further eye contact with himself. His life partner has already left for work. He closes the front door behind him and spies a fresh ration of cat food stacked next to the wall. He cries quietly as he descends to the ground floor, his shoes on the stone stairway tick-tocking like a metronome. This, too, will pass, he thinks. He knows the saying, but cannot place it exactly. Some graffiti scrawled in a work bathroom, maybe. His work, and the work of the entire building, is watching the video feeds of the other citizens' waking lives. He observes, notes, and records crimes. Then he sends out letters of punishment. Fines and jail terms. Row upon row of blank-faced colleagues sit next to him and do the same. By his left hand is the manual, a book of all the rules and applicable punishments. It is filled with a multitude of rainbow-colored notes that take him to common crimes. Crimes of thought. Crimes of action. Mens rea, actus reus. The guilty mind. The guilty act. They are assigned a new citizen to observe every three months to stop from becoming too attached. From caring. He watches dispassionately as a woman hangs herself from the balcony of the inner stairwell of a housing block. Another resident leaves their home to see what the disturbance is. They look up at her, flailing, her face purpling, her eyes bulging. She futilely tries to pull herself up the rope to give herself a little air, but she doesn't have the strength. She kicks in the air, trying to reach the metal stairwell, but can't get the momentum so she reaches out to him for help. For a second, the man considers helping. Her legs are easily within reach if he just leans out over the railing a little. The video feed shows his face, a contortion of desired intention and rational, conditioned thought. 
until he finally decides to go back inside. Helping a stranger is a crime. Giving medical aid is a crime. He hates himself for feeling a measure of numbness at the feed, as the next three hours double speed forward. He watches absently as the dead woman turns on the rope. More people walk past her. A little girl stops and points, but is pulled along by her mother. The woman's corpse defecates, and the waist slips down her stained trouser legs and drops eighteen floors down. A crew arrives and cuts her loose. Her slack body falls and bursts on the stone tiling far below. Another crew arrives and takes the remains away. For the rest of his day, his mind strays from his work. His thoughts drift up through the clouds and into the deepest vaults of space. As he reviews the passing life of another citizen, he imagines the vastness of the universe and seeks solace in the wonder of it. There is a font of something inside him that feels artificially stopping. It is a feeling that is illegal in most expressible ways. He feels at times an almost unimaginable pressure in his heart. It is an urge to do something, an inarticulate compulsion for some kind of action. He reasons that maybe everyone has that same feeling but hides it better, or that he is simply a deviant. He returns home, and the body of his cat is gone. His life partner sits in the living room watching television. It's a program he doesn't enjoy, so he goes to his bedroom to lie down. She eyes him suspiciously as he crosses the front room behind the sofa, past the row of carved stone elephants, giraffes, and birds. He imagines the body of his friend being rendered into its constituent proteins and fats, processed and cleaned, then piped into food units. He hopes that the cameras can't see that he is crying. There is a warm, circular area on his bed cover where his cat would sleep next to him, and he absently brushes it lightly with his thumb. He smells some of the fur stuck to the duvet. Unapproved visual displays of grieving is a crime, and his grief license has expired. He thinks about the dead woman, too, her long, pink tongue lolling obscenely from her mouth, her neck stretched to alien proportions. He turns on his side and looks at the strange landscape of city through the bedroom porthole. A plane banks low through the gathering clouds and then veers left toward the airport. He sees other planes taking off, quickly ascending into the clouds above. The lights inside buildings blink like temporary stars. He observes the distant, unmapped constellations of lit office windows. His thoughts stray once more to what the world is like outside the city, until he finally falls asleep. He is dreaming about the wings again when his life partner bursts into his room. Her eyes bulge like boiled eggs, and her hands are up to her throat. He sits bolt upright in bed and watches her dying. He remains immobile until she gives one last strangled noise and passes out, her breath caught behind the food lodged in her windpipe. He stands over her body, shaking the mandatory emergency call time elapsing, his inaction turning into crime. She begins to pale. An hour passes, then two. She has not moved. In the window, tails of light dip down into the city, 
Old galaxies blink out and fresh ones are born. Rigor mortis sets in and then lets loose its grip. Blood begins to pool, following gravity's call. He moves in and out of the room. He paces. The person who watches the video feed later vicariously experiences his anxiety. The video footage reviewed later evidences his first miracle. He bends down and touches the dead woman's forehead. He closes his eyes, and light from an unknown source begins to fill the room until the camera feed is oversaturated. There is time loss on the recording, and it continues three minutes later. The recording shows his life partner sitting up, her back pressed against his mattress. She is crying, but alive again. There is no precedent for crimes of this nature, yet he knows that it is a crime to subvert delicately balanced systems and processes of order such as this. In a panic, he gathers together a small bundle of belongings and pushes them down inside a bag designated for work use only. As he does this, his life partner calls civilian protection. He leaves, and she returns to the living room to continue watching television. When civilian protection arrive, they take her statement and review the footage. They return an hour later and euthanize her. A reclamation vehicle takes her body away for processing. It's early morning when he leaves the block. He walks around the low fence, guarding a small, grassy square, and quickly strides away. The concrete tower blocks loom behind him like fingers on a grasping hand, trying to pull him back. The sunrise is just starting to prickle the edges of the night, but he can't quite see it yet. He relives what he did, not quite comprehending it, but some inner part of him knowing exactly what it was. He queues at the bus stop behind the early morning shift, the first wave of many to come. The automatic processes of politeness and legality remain, even though he knows he is wanted. He must be, or he is a criminal. Only the government are permitted to change the course of things, and he considers that as he continues to divert from his normal routine and ride the bus through the city. The familiarity of the buildings keeps him in a constant state of fear. He is escaping. It is the only recourse other than handing himself in, but some rabid instinct makes him dart for the border. Some unfulfilled part of him needs to continue on, but the buildings make it seem as if he is traveling nowhere except straight into the familiar. His escape has a nightmarish quality to it, for when he doesn't dream about the wings, he dreams he is running on the spot, running and running until his legs turn to ash, but moving nowhere. For miles and miles the bus goes, stopping every few hundred yards until finally he crosses some invisible threshold, and the shapes of the buildings start to change. The lines of the road differ and curve off in unpredictable patterns. He relaxes enough to fall asleep, his head gently resting against the cool glass. He is awoken at the end of the line. A few buses parked in rows slowly hiss and shift into a large garage to be cleaned and sent back along the route. Aside from that, the street is empty. People are at work. There is no unemployment in the city, not with everyone watching each other, each piece of the machine working in measured unison.
to the east, a wall and a fence. Guard posts. Sliding gates that magnetically lock. Beyond that, he sees the tops of trees. Wild trees, not the wilted brown city trees. And a wind rolls over the top of the perimeter that smells of sticky sap and leaves and earth. He closes his eyes and imagines a life on the other side of that fence. A helicopter seed from a maple tree drifts over with the breeze, and it is abhorrent to him. A willing captive, somehow, brought by the wind. He catches it in midair and puts it in his pocket. A companion, then. One that he promises to release once they are over the wall. A promise he knows he cannot keep. To the east lies the city, those blocks blotting out the rising sun in neatly ordered intervals, burnt black, their slow-moving shadow clawing the light from the streets below. A civilian protection cruiser pulls up and two men get out and command his obedience. He acquiesces, and as they pull away, heading back into the city again, he looks back over his shoulder at the tops of the trees and sees a small bird flitting from a high branch down below the fence line. In a stark white room, a woman dressed in a pressed suit asks him questions he doesn't know the answer to. What does he know? How did he do what he did? Who does he work for? Does he hate the government? Is he seeking to unbalance power? Is he an activist? The answers he gives to these questions fall on deaf ears. They do not value honesty, these people. They inject him with something and show him the feet of the first miracle. They ask the same questions. They do not ask him about his dreams, and he is thankful for that. After they speak to him, they put him in a small room with no windows. He deserves this, he knows. He broke the rules, the rules he knows by heart, and he thinks of the person who will inherit his desk, his copy of the rules, his notes. It is three days later that they enter the cell, and the man places the barrel of a handgun against his head and pulls the trigger. It happens so fast that he scarcely has the chance to consider what is happening. He is terrified, but he realizes that he always has been. His body is taken for processing and rendered into its constituent proteins and fats, processed and cleaned. What is left behind is piped into food. The government denies that this happens. 926 people consume what was once his body. A woman, nursing her child, drinks tea with real milk that contains remnants of him. A young boy eats a bowl of Nutri-Cereal mix that he has been added to. Three days later, the footage evidences his second miracle. At exactly midnight, there is a flash of light in his cell. The intensity of the light overpowers the camera and the sensors short out. Then, three minutes later, he can be seen in the room again. This is a crime. He has no memory of the intervening time, only an ephemeral sense memory of his dreams. He is wearing the clothes he was in when he was shot. They are stained with dry blood, and he remembers the face of the man who shot him. In his pocket is the maple seed. He is taken by helicopter to a facility. No one speaks to him because it is a crime. 
From above, the city looks like a lunar crater or a sundial. The helicopter ascends through the smog, and ahead he sees a landscape carved from cumulus and nimbus, beautiful mountains of white and gray carved from marbled smoke beneath a blue, wide-open sky. The people in the helicopter crane their necks to see. The facility is 100 miles north of the city, and he smiles a little when he sees the landscape below. There is a bar of golden sand that runs north to south, and an ocean the color of the sky. As he approaches, he sees tiny white waves break along the shore. The people in the helicopter take in the view with a clear disdain. They are agents of order and control, and he feels their discomfort amongst the chaos of nature. As they wheel him on a gurney through white corridors that smell of antiseptic, he knows what will be next. There is no supernatural foresight at work here, just logical steps forward. He sees tests, needles and scalpels and bullets. How much can he take before he expires? Will individual parts return after three days? Their objective curiosity reaching the upper limits of human cruelty. They are detached from the subject of their tests. He is a criminal, and they must hate the criminal. They show him the footage. The white light that burns the lens is the same color as the wings from his dream. They must know what he is. Their authority cannot be challenged. It is a week after his 43rd miracle return. Inside the drab walls of the city, a baby who suddenly dies is brought back to life by its mother. In the north end of the city, a boy is hit by a bus and killed. His body is taken and rendered. Three days later, he arrives home again with no knowledge of the missing time. This is the beginning. So, that was A Small Life by Joe Butler, and we have Joe Butler here with us today to talk a little bit about the story. So, Joe, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, um, my name's Joe Butler. I am a, a horror and sci-fi and speculative fiction author, and I'm also one of the co-founders of TLDR Press, which is a small charity press. Mm -hmm. Indeed, I believe we actually shouted out TLDR Press on one of the previous episodes of this very podcast. I believe so. Yeah. I think there's there's a bit of a shared history with um, Bandit Fiction and TLDR Press. I think we, we sort of came about at about the same time. Yeah, we, we uh, go back a long way. We do, we do. Uh, back to, including your interview with us in 2018, which is a nice segue yeah. into my next question, which was, back then you mentioned that this piece, uh, A Small Life, was very Orwellian, which I, I do agree with, but when I was reading through it, I got a sort of a sense of almost that like brave new world aesthetic of that more regimented everything by the numbers lifestyle what inspired the piece in general so i mean obviously there was 1984 that had influenced it but also uh, kafka's the trial mm -hmm. so the idea of kind of like a relative nobody who gets pulled kind of fatally into the wheels of a um totalitarian bu bureaucracy but mm -hmm. the idea of Everything's a crime in the world of the story, almost like sort of anything that would be deemed kind of normal behavior, almost emotional reactions to things um, like grief, helping someone out, the sorts of things that people would do sort of normally as part of their day. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wanted to kind of capture that idea of 
this huge kind of bureaucratic machine that monitors itself and everyone's paying for things that you know should be a kind of a right that makes sense makes sense yeah. So in, in the time since then, because it's obviously been quite a while since A Small Life was originally published by us, have you continued to work on the piece in the time since then? I haven't. I did have it picked up by another publication after the rights uh, reverted back to me, and I wrote, and they asked me to provide an essay on it as well. But unfortunately, that that publication disappeared um, in the time between the acceptance and publication, which is unfortunate. No, I haven't worked on it since, really. I And I like the idea. I occasionally think about it. And my friend David Clark, he did the, the voice recording for it. Have you used that idea in any other writing? Like, I know you said that you are a speculative fiction writer. Has that idea bled into anything else? Or is this just a standalone piece and you've kept it separate? Not that world in particular. I mean, I like mm. to think that kind of a lot of the stories that I write that are dystopian all have a kind of a shared language or a shared universe. Mm-hmm. So the themes I, I pulled into other pieces and that type of thing, but really that is kind of a standalone. I really wanted to play with the idea of kind of meshing supernatural with dystopian fiction. So like, what would a Christ-like figure do in a horrifyingly authoritarian universe? Mm-hmm. But generally, I pull those types of themes out to anti-authoritarianism and systems of control and that type of thing. I, I tend to pull that out. That is a thread that runs through a lot of my work. Okay. So, obviously, you said you haven't really changed anything about it. Uh, but is there anything you would change about it? I know hindsight is twenty twenty, and I have certainly looked back at pieces of my old work and thought, I'd change that or I'd change this. Is there anything about a small life that you would change? Yeah, I mean, I'm one of those writers that I will write something um, and I'll quite enjoy it once I've finished it, but then sort of a week or two weeks later, I'll look at it and I'll hate it. So I, I don't tend to sort of reread a lot of the pieces that I've done. But I think I, yeah, I think I would probably make it a little bit more concise. I think as I've grown into my writing voice, I, I think I would probably go back and have a look at it and make it a little bit more, a little bit more precise. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's certainly something I can get behind. I mean, I've done it for my own work where I've gone back and looked through it through newer eyes, so to speak, and updated mm. it to my modern standards. Yeah, that's totally it. I mean, I think it's just, I would see sort of passages or if there's anything that kind of, any of the descriptives or any comes across as a little bit kind of cliche, then I would probably try and retool some of that stuff. But overall, I, I still quite like it. I, I did do a read of it just before this interview. And yeah, there's some there's some quite nice things in there that I'm quite proud of. Yeah, I, I agree. There were some quite poignant lines in there that really stuck with me or caught me off guard, in particular with the main character's life partner. After he has his Lazarus effect miracle on her, and she calls the police on him, and then they come round and euthanize her. I don't know why that really that stuck with me for a few moments when I listened to David Clark in the reading. He did an excellent rendition of the, the sort of tone. Yeah, it's one of the things that comes through in a lot of my work. It's being punished for being good. It's kind of like the idea of rules are rules, and you may have done the right thing, but you're going to be punished for it. So yeah, but I mean, David has um, a really good ability to elevate 
people's writing. I mean, he's he's one of my friends, and I've listened to him do lots of readings, and he's just fantastic. I, I think if you're gonna if you get it in any format, I think listen to the audio because <laughs> David <laughs> will, David does an amazing job of, of of making me look good, sound good. No, he he did a, a very very good rendition of it. So on to our next question, which is, do you have any advice for other aspiring authors? Because you said you've been published by other places as well. What wisdom have you picked up during that time? Difficult to be kind of prescriptive to other writers, but I can say what works for me. So so I, I dabbled with writing fiction for, for a long time. And then when I sort of hit 30, I realised that I wasn't really getting any better. And that was because I would write for six months every day like five hours a day or whatever and then I would burn out and then I wouldn't write for another six months and then when I came back to it I'd have to relearn a lot of stuff so for me um, what works for me is consistency so like I set a, an hour a day every day uh, about lunchtime I will write for an hour and this has kind of trained my brain that I'm always excited to write I don't really get burnt out I mean, occasionally there's some, there's some flexibility in there. So if I'm like really excited, I will allow myself a bit more time. Or if I'm working on projects for the press and that type of thing, I'll allow myself to, to do more. But um, in terms of sort of writing fiction, I'll give myself an hour a day. My brain starts to wind up at about 11 o'clock in the morning um, and starts switching over to write what am I going to write in an hour? What am I going to write in an hour? And then I'll, I'll hammer out about a thousand words. And then afterwards... I'm really, I'm always really excited to come back to it. I just think I always having that something in the well to keep you going. I found that's really infused me because it's it's kind of all I think about. I've got some other hobbies, but generally writing has taken over my life, and I've been doing that for good while. So I've probably about seven or eight years. I've been really doing that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of sort of other advice, find what works for you, really. But that's how I have been able to stick to it. But in terms of sort of getting published, that's a whole different kettle of fish. So, I mean, for me, one of the people in the press set up a channel in our Slack group, and it's called Race to Rejections. And it's about abandoning the idea that rejection is a bad thing. Um, and it's about embracing rejection. You know, working in, in the publishing industry um, in our press has really kind of opened my eyes to how little things come through and get published with us so like we get loads of submissions um, and we have to reject stories that we really like and it's not often you know once you get to kind of certain technical level it's it's not about the writing it's about the story it's about the judges taste it's about what fits the theme of the publication and it's not about the writer so the Race to Rejections channel and, and that type of thing is is really about celebrating getting your work out. There's so many publications in there and there are so many really amazing publications out there. It's just finding a fit with the right one uh, at the right time and catching the attention of the editor. So, yeah, I, it's really just to just to sort of abandon the idea of thinking that rejection is bad and embrace the fact that actually you're putting your work out there and rejection is great. <laughs> Just keep at it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I fully agree, but obviously working on the opposite candidate for Bandit, I fully agree that we definitely do get a lot of stories in which I've read them for review and deciding whether we're going to submission. I thought, this is excellent, but it's not quite there. 
or there's a particular element missing from it. Like, as you said, it's not necessarily about the writing. The writing's excellent, but the story mm. is, it doesn't grip you. So it doesn't, it doesn't make the cut, but yeah. there are some stories which are absolutely gripping, but maybe the writing is not quite up to scratch. Yeah. So again, it doesn't quite make it. And I, I definitely know what you mean. The The volume of stories that we go through compared to the volume that get published is, is a massive mm. ratio. And what I, one other thing, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, we get we get loads of stuff, um, and we do kind of themed anthologies. So we'll get a whole ton in a. You guys always are open for uh, submissions, aren't you? So, yes, we are. Yeah, so so we do kind of timed anthologies where everything will be themed. Um, so we'll get stuff that's great that just doesn't fit the vision of what we what we want to put together. Mm. I, I would just say keep on submitting. Yeah, at the end of the day, the worst thing they can say is no, right? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things that's happening in a lot of the kind of smaller presses is a really great kind of unique selling point or marketing point for a small presses to give feedback. And it's one of the things that we love doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we love giving feedback to emerging writers. We love that we could be someone's first publication. And we love when people get excited about their piece and we really really like we have a passion for promoting other people's work you know and giving people really good helpful feedback if it's not being accepted is a, is an important part of what we do and and we love we love doing that and i think if we can help develop people you know they'll submit something oftentimes we see people who have been say rejected by us will resubmit and they will get something in it's always a pleasure when you see something like that yeah, it's amazing. Like, like I, I love it. It's, it. it's one of the real sort of highlights of working at the press. Yeah, uh, I definitely agree. We've had people from, strictly speaking about it, we don't accept direct resubmissions, but I have had people who've submitted perhaps a piece and not made the cut, and then at a later date, that same author submit a different piece, and it does make the cut, and it's obvious that they've taken what we said about it on board and, and really made the effort to come back with it, and it has made all the difference. Yeah, totally. And and we do, because obviously we're a writing community as well on Slack. So there's people who will, um, who have joined the Slack who have submitted to us, and maybe we've we've not been able to publish that. And we've given feedback. And we have like a beta channel and that type of thing where, and, you know, and we've seen them go away, work on their piece, get more feedback, polish it up, and then it gets accepted, uh, like elsewhere. And that's that's such an awesome feeling. And I love I love being part of that. Agreed. So, we'll draw this interview to a close here, but one last question before we go. We've already sort of alluded to this several times, but where else can we find your work? I, I've i got a website that I, I haven't been able to update in the last year or so because it mainly it focuses on my guerrilla writing project, which is, um, like, I leave ghost stories in hotels, so I hide them somewhere in the room for other unwitting guests to to find <laughs> yes um, i imagine that would have been quite difficult to continue giving the previous year yeah 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 so i mean i do have a website but i'm i'm you can mostly find me on twitter uh, at right like a shark mm-hmm. and i've got some i've got a novel coming out should be out relatively soon which i'm self-publishing i've just finished up the um the sequel to it and it's with beta readers so i'm i'm just waiting for for a couple of bits to be done and then it should be released into the world and other than that, I mean, my you can find stuff that, that I've had published uh, by going to my Twitter, I think. I think I've got a list of things, a list of things there. 
mm-hmm. or go to Bandit Fiction. You, you guys have published me twice, which is awesome of you. <laughs> <laughs> and a little bit about TLDR Press. Is, do you have a website for that? We do, yes. So if you go to tldrpress.org, we are a uh, registered charity press. You can find sort of our library of stories, collections there. Um, we've released 10 from 2017 onwards for 10 different charities, but we also have a Slack group as well. So if you are interested in my terrible takes on things or my <laughs> random nonsense I'm likely to spew out, you can feel free to um, apply to join the Slack. We're always looking for new members of the community, uh, which has about 200 people. Oh, um, yeah, just over 200 people. Awesome. Well, with that, I think we'll draw this interview to a close. Thank you for joining me, Joe. Well, thank you. And that was Joe Butler talking about his story, A Small Life, and his organisation, TLDR Press. Before we get into our last piece of the day, I would like to take a moment to shout out another creative enterprise, Warning Lines. Warning Lines Mag is a new press committed to creating a space which centres and uplifts the creative voices of people whose society tends to marginalise, alienate and erase. Specifically by POC, trans, queer, neurodivergent folks and especially those belonging to multiple of these communities. You can find out more about them through their website at warninglines.com and on Twitter at warninglines. Our final piece for the day is Pigeon English by David Cook. Read by me. Dom entered the shabby bus station and walked past a shabby pigeon, which said, All right, mate? He stopped dead, looked at the bird, then away, then back again. Did you just say something? he asked. Of course not, mate. My bloody pigeon, said the pigeon. Bugger me, a talking pigeon, exclaimed Dom. Read my beak. I am not a talking pigeon. Coo bloody coo, okay? No, no, you're speaking now. I heard that. Nah, mate. Cracking up, that's what it is. Voices in the head and that, innit? See a doctor if I were you. What? No, you're bloody well talking. I'm not. You ask that lot. Dom turned to the small crowd at the bus station, who looked away simultaneously while being absolutely sure to keep staring, which is quite a skill when you think about it. You heard it, right? he demanded. That pigeon spoke. The crowd avoided eye contact. A few people shook their heads and mumbled. See, mate, said the pigeon. You've gone round the twist. Loco in the coconut. Nuts in the nut. Check yourself into a clinic. That's my advice. Dom looked around desperately crowd are all taking a tremendous interest in the timetable for the number 42. Then a small voice piped up nearby. I heard him talking, mister, it said. Dom wheeled round in joy. He wasn't going mad after all. A talking pigeon! Who'd have ever thought of it? said the rat by his foot. And that is the end of this episode. As usual, we thank you for your time, and hope you've enjoyed the stories we've brought to you this episode. If you have, please remember to like and share these podcasts, and help spread these amazing stories to more people, so that we can continue to help emerging writers find their feet. 
As a closing word, if you're interested in reading more of the stories and poems we've published, or perhaps even want to be involved yourself, head over to our website at www.banditfiction.com. Thank you again, and we'll see you soon.